it's the spree shootings and the things that affect white folks that mostly get the political and the, the public attention. Almost all of the, the grinding, awful, everyday homicide and gun violence in this country is suffered by black and brown people in historically damaged black and brown communities. Welcome to the Rain Insights Podcast. I'm Emily Donahue. The statistics are cause for concern. Or are they? Where would you say crime rates have been since the pandemic began in early 2020? In fact, FBI and BJS data show dramatic declines in U.S. violent and property crime rates since the early 90s. Even in the face of that information, released by the Pew Center at the end of 2020, many Americans believe crime rates are going up. Why? Some of that may be because that's how we've been conditioned to think. Amid a national reckoning on race, justice, and police behavior, there are some who have long been searching to change our norms of both belief and behavior. Today's podcast explores how communities and police and others in authority can work towards change. Let's listen as Rain founder David Lawrence speaks to David Kennedy, criminologist, professor, action researcher, and author specializing in crime prevention among inner city gangs. David, this is um, a particularly opportune moment uh, to be able to have a conversation with you, and we go back a number of years. So thank you for making time um, for us at a time where issues around civil unrest, rising crime rates, concerns about urban violence, and um, social justice. Uh, I can't imagine anyone uh, that I'd rather have a conversation with about these topics than you. So thank you for making time for us. Kind words, David. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. Let me start uh, by way of uh, introduction, and we're going to uh, sort of append links to a number of articles and your books and things like that. But it would be great for our audience to get an overview um, of your career and, you know, basically your personal narrative and how you basically became interested and involved with one of the most important issues facing this country, which is around community safety and security, police-citizen relationships, issues around, I'll call it, legal and social justice, and generally the ability to preserve the human capital of our country and to make sure that, you know, everyone, and I mean everyone, is able to find their potential. And I don't think that's an overstatement in summarizing, you know, the body of your work. So why don't we begin and allow you just to speak to the audience and uh, a little bit about your history and the personal narrative and, you know, basically your objectives. I'm a professor of criminal justice at John Jay College of Criminal Justice in New York City, which is a city university of, of New York school. I'm director at John Jay of a research center called the National Network for Safe Communities. And NNSC is an applied action research, violence prevention, and public safety shop. We, we take on these, these key problems. We, we work with frontline uh, practitioners and community folks and, and others to support them with with facts on the ground and strategic thinking, um, we take on particular substantive problems like 
homicide and gun violence and drug markets and intimate partner violence and, and craft strategic solutions to those. We test them and evaluate them, and when they work, we take them to scale. And at any given time, we're involved with usually a couple of dozen American cities and increasingly some foreign settings. Right now, we're working in Mexico and Sweden and uh, setting up in, in the Netherlands and Denmark. But we, we are an applied, hands-on public safety center. So everything you've just said is exactly right. Um, I spend a lot of time saying to people, this is, this is a lot simpler than we make it. And everything you've just said is exactly right. And then there's a simpler way to say it, which is in this country forever, uh, black and brown communities have been suffering unconscionable levels of very serious violence. Um, this country, everybody knows, has a horrific gun violence problem. It's the spree shootings and the things that affect white folks that mostly get the political and the, the public attention. Almost all of the, the grinding, awful, everyday homicide and gun violence in this country is suffered by black and brown people in historically damaged black and brown communities. And 30 years ago, while paying attention to other things, I, I found my way into those communities, um, saw up close what was not even hiding in plain sight. It was in plain sight. Um, this country has never cared about black and brown lives. And what I saw then, which was at the, the beginning of, of the horrific 10 years of the American crack epidemic, was appalling beyond anything I could have imagined. And it captured me and I've been working on it ever since. And David, I'm gonna pick up two themes and ask you to expand upon this. So one theme is you are a scientist, I'll use that term, who has gone into various communities, observed, interacted directly with uh, you, your research is not conducted in a remote laboratory. And secondly, uh, you know, one constant thread amidst all your work is the, I'll use a, a Steve Jobs uh, term, is finding simplicity amidst complexity. And if you could speak a little bit about the sort of your your approach to research some of the conclusions you have reached, because the issue here is what are the most effective and the best ways to reduce violence, preserve community safety and security. Too often attention is focused on, you know, random shootings as opposed to what families have to live with on a day in and day out basis. And I'd love you to talk about sort of the lessons that you've learned, how you have learned them, the programs that you have now put together, and what I'll refer to as the evidence-based research and the conclusions that have gone with it. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny to hear the, the Steve Jobs quote. Um, 
you know, there there is now what what my world calls evidence-based violence prevention. So, you know, this is sort of the the academy capturing this work from 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 the outside and after the fact. You know, evidence-based in, in my world means on, on, on a solid social science foundation, um, you know, it's, it's coming to mean based on facts. It was originally meant to mean we know because of rigorous evaluation that it works. And that, that is now true in violence prevention. It wasn't when I started, and it wasn't until fairly recently. It wasn't that long ago that, that people said for anything particularly immediate, right? We have we have a homicide issue right, right now. We're going to do something right now to address it. There wasn't anything in that portfolio that worked. And, and on the prevention side, people's attention was on very long-term uh, root causes and structural conditions in communities and, and that kind of thing, which as important as they are, can, can never be fast. Um, there is now a body of immediately effective violence prevention work. And what, what's, what's funny about hearing the, the Steve Jobs reference is, you know, it really wasn't invented in people's garages. And what I mean by that is it did not come out of the big institutions. It did not come out of the universities. It did not come out of public health. Uh, it came out of frontline practice by people who were obsessively driven to deal with these issues. And what all of it has in common, and I, I learned this initially from those frontline folks um, when, when my little team set up in, in Boston with what became the Boston Gun Project in 1995, we, we didn't know anything more than anybody else uh, who didn't know anything about this stuff, about what was going on. And the frontline gang officers and street outreach workers and, and you know, street active probation and parole folks and the, the juvenile justice def defense bar, they knew what was going on. And what they knew was that a fantastically small number of people at extraordinarily high risk were doing overwhelmingly the lion's share of both the the dying and the getting hurt and the killing and the hurting. Nobody in my world believed that, right? I, I, I am a sort of faux academic. I had read everything there was to read about this. This was 10 years into the crack epidemic, 10 years into the, the, the great American um, homicide epidemic. And nobody knew what these frontline folks knew. At least nobody had, had written it down and acknowledged it and built on it. And what they knew was that this was what they call the gang problem. So this was, this was Boston. It didn't have blood and crips and people and folks and MS-13 and that kind of thing. But it had this um, network of little crack groups that the crack epidemic had, had brought into being. And everybody thought the violence was about the drug market. It, it wasn't. It turns out that if you get a whole bunch of scared, traumatized young men together in groups with, with guns, bad things happen. And what would be ordinary social friction in any other place becomes vendetta. It gets picked up by the groups. The groups carry it sometimes for decades. 
um, you will find one of these groups in the in the neighborhood today and they're fighting with another group and they've been killing each other back and forth literally for 30 or 40 years now. Nobody involved today was involved at the beginning. Nobody involved today even knows what it was about. But the groups are there, the dynamics are there. There's almost nobody in these groups in the community. Um, the research on this is really solid. You, you take all of the groups and everybody in them they will aggregate to right around one half of 1% of the overall population and they will be connected with 50, 60, 70% of the, the killing and the dying. And that did not come out of social science. It came out of frontline practice and community action. And the interventions that have worked have also come out of frontline practice and community action. And I, I've been part of that, far from the only part of it. But there's been now a portfolio of ways of engaging with that small world of people and groups at highest risk that is very effective. And the piece that, that I've been part of developing incorporates law enforcement, community engagement, social services. Um, it's very tight, it's very focused, it engages directly with that small world at highest risk and it will regularly produce 30, 40, 50, 60% reductions in this violence, you know, in, in the near term. So we, we are not living in the same world of futility that we used to be. So David, I actually want to, for the benefit of the audience, I actually want to get uh, more granular with you uh, rather than the uh, 10,000 foot view. What exactly have you learned? What do you do? And can you unpack your programs for people? Because right now, we're looking for answers. Uh, we've gone through a very difficult period during this pandemic. You know, profound questions about policing, defunding the police, increasing the police, issues around bail reform, issues around sentencing reform, issues around what laws should be in effect. And... You know, in our prior conversations, you know, you have noted we continue to do the same thing over and over again and, you know, not surprisingly, to the same outcome. So I'd like you in uh, to reduce the complexity. And you have developed modules, models. You've worked effectively with a variety of police departments at a time when there were really very profound questions about the role of the police the role of civil society, how to protect people, how to keep communities safe, how to protect our children, how families can feel more secure. Share with us what we have been doing wrong, what the evidence actually shows we should be doing, and how we, how we can do it. So let's, let's start with something really important that you've just said, which is we keep on doing the same things over and over again and they don't work. So let's, let's start there. So there are basically two ways that people have thought about these, these issues of, of really serious violence and, and, and public fear and disorder and crime. So one, one is to essentially fix, fix the community. And that's that's obviously a, a sort of politically left perspective. It's about collective accountability and collective responsibility. 
and it says, let's eradicate racism, let's build up the schools, let's fix health care, let's work on economic opportunity. And uh, all of that is critically important for the affected communities, right? One, one basically only finds this kind of concentrated violence in, in communities that have been formed by outside forces and by history. These, these communities did not create themselves. They deserve all of that support. And as a practical matter, that kind of intervention has not been effective in addressing the serious violence. And there, there are a couple of reasons for that. Um, amongst the most important are that as deep as those insults to the health of the community are, the community is so fundamentally healthy that despite all of that harm, the community governs itself, people raise their families, deal with each other in ways that just to, to go back to what we've talked about already, almost nobody in the community is at high risk for either hurting or being hurt. The community very effectively resists those pressures when it comes to the most serious violence and disorder. The second reason is that the violence itself is a driver of the violence. It's not just an outcome, it's an input. And if, if you're a young man in one of these groups and you happen to have born, born onto the street where this group defines your, you know, your, your public life, or the group that's warring with you thinks you're an enemy because you're on this street, the fact that the violence is going back and forth means that the violence will continue to go back and forth. And in that sense, the violence itself is a root cause of the violence. And just looking at the conditions in the community, if it doesn't touch that core violence dynamic, the violence will continue. You know, on the other side, the thing that we usually do to try to address those immediate dynamics is we do law enforcement. And the way we've done law enforcement in these communities is itself a root cause of the violence because the way we've done law enforcement damages the community, whether that's you know, his, historical active racism and racial violence done under color of law, whether that's separate but equal and Jim Crow and, and, and that historical period, or whether it's the modern period of mass incarceration and zero tolerance policing. The law and the application of the law has consistently touched large numbers of people for things that white folks in other places get away with has damaged their lives and their families' lives and the lives of their communities by uh, not protecting them, by locking them up, by giving them criminal records, by damaging their lives socially and economically forever. And most importantly, has alienated the community from the police and the law. So that if, if you are one of these folks in, in trouble and you need to protect yourself, you don't call 911, you don't want what the police have to offer. Some of you will get a gun in your friends and you will take care of protecting yourself. And that becomes another act in this long string of retaliation. So the, the, the two main ways we think about this simply don't work. And what, what we've been able to construct out of existing resources. 
So there is a place for this, for community action and community engagement. There's a place for addressing those root causes of education and immediate security and food on the table and, and that whole portfolio. And there's a limited but important place for the rule of law. And what the focused deterrence framework, which is the piece of this that I've been most involved with, has been able to do is to figure out how to take those key elements, community action, outreach and support, policing and law enforcement, put them together in a way that is very different than what we usually do, and then sit down directly with, with these groups and individuals at highest risk and say to them face to face, we want you alive, we want you free, we don't want you hurt, we don't want you locked up. Uh, you, you are incredibly important to us because you are at highest risk. We want you safe, alive, and free. And people you respect in the community, the mother of your friend who, who's, who's been lost to the violence, the original gangster that you looked up to when you were coming up, they are going to say to you, this has to stop. The community can't stand it. There's, there's no good in this for anybody. We will help you in any way in your immediate life. People used to think that was school and work. It's not. It's who's trying to kill you. We will stop them. It's you've got outstanding warrants. You can't leave your house. We'll deal with the warrants. We'll put food on your table. We'll get you out of harm's way. We'll turn your mother's power back on. It's that kind of immediate granular support. And law enforcement says to people, we don't want to have to do what we've been doing. We are not going to lead with enforcement, but you are at great risk legally because of the things you and your group are doing. And we're going to tell you ahead of time what your legal risks are and that the violence is going to bring a new and special kind of attention. And we're going to tell you ahead of time what that's going to be and what will bring it to your group. So please, don't do this, don't make us do this. And that kind of sustained partnership, focused engagement with those at highest risk has made a tremendous difference for decades now all over the country. And it does what people want. People are demanding correctly a new kind of public safety and in, in a way that is specifically tailored for the violence. This brings community action to the fore it brings as much outreach and support and, and therapeutic intervention as possible to the fore. And it puts policing and law enforcement as far in the background with as much legitimacy and transparency as right now we know how to do. Let's stay with me with a hypothetical. And because what's important here is um, this notion of we keep doing the same thing over and over again, expecting a different outcome. And what you and some of your colleagues have found is actually there are other ways to reduce violence, reduce the discord between police and the communities, but we're just not implementing these things. So I'm going to play a hypothetical. I'm the mayor of Fallen Black City. I've reached out to you. I've said, David, we're bringing you in. I want to turn 
you know, our city around over the next year. I want to reduce violence. I want to reduce the conflict between the police and the community. And I want to start to implement your models. Can you take us through these um, various steps? And just as a, a bit of a predicate, assume I've been studying your work. And I know at, at the very beginning, number one, um, we're going to remove the political underbrush. Uh, recognize that uh, you have a great quote that the uh, you know how to deal with the so-called bad guys. It's the good guys who are still struggling how to deal with it. So translate that. That very often uh, I'll quote Walt Kelly, who was the artist behind the Pogo cartoon and the famous line, "We've met the enemy and he is us." So um, I'm going to remove. Uh, the bureaucracy, I'm going to remove the politics. I'm essentially giving you a whiteboard, giving you access to our police department, our community leaders, and with the notion that there, there is now the opportunity to try something different, try some new things, different message to go out, and the opportunity to maybe deploy different messengers. Take us through exactly what you're doing. And I, I always like, you know, in presidential terms, David, you know, what's the hundred, what's the hundred, first hundred day plan? And I want to obviously in the first year turn this around. Yeah. The, the first hundred day plan on this kind of thing is now really well understood. And what, what you're going to find is everything that a city needs to do this, it has already. Um, but the right pieces aren't elevated and the, the right pieces are not organized and coordinated in the right way. And so the, the 100 days is really about uh, elevating those pieces and getting them in alignment. So the first thing that one needs to do is identify the violence dynamic on the ground and Nothing we do in, in the ordinary way gets us the right information. Uh, we, we don't look for these groups in, in, in the way that they are. People look for gangs. They look for organized crime. Uh, they don't see those things, so they can't see what's right in front of them. Uh, we don't ask the right questions for, for homicides and shootings. Uh, something goes into the logbook as a dispute, and what people close to the action know is that the shooter was group involved, the victim was group involved, they've been beefing for 25 years, it's been quiet for a couple of years, but the, the victim's older brother gave out of prison and was throwing his weight around, and that got everybody up on edge, and two of these group members ran into each other at a club, they exchanged hard glance, glances. The shooting happened outside. Uh, the shooter was caught with the gun in his hand. That case has been solved. And the, the record that goes to the FBI says dispute. And so that, that kind of information just doesn't tell us what we need to know. So people carry this information around in their heads. And so getting the right frontline police and investigative and, and community people in, in a room saying, what's going on here? Which are the groups? What are the beefs? What are the alliances? Who are the most important figures? 
Let's look at the last couple of years worth of homicides and non-fatal shootings, unpack each one. What is happening here? And it, literally in a day or two of that, you can redefine the understanding of, of homicide and gun violence across an entire city. So first you get the facts on the ground right. Then you look at the three key elements of the operational intervention. So we, we want people who those at highest risk will listen to and respect. And we, we say about these guys, you know, they, they have no respect for human life. They have no respect for anybody. That's absolutely not right. They just don't respect us and they don't respect the people that we think they should respect. Every community has people that the streets regard as absolutely legitimate. Um, the, the, the surviving mothers of the, the young men who have been killed, the older, wiser, original gangsters who the guys today looked up to when they were coming up, and those older guys are now 20 and 30 and 40, and, and they've come out of federal prison and they know the emperor has no clothes. There's, a, there's an, an, an older mother on every block who will walk up to these guys while they're, they're, they're drunk and stoned and armed at 3 o'clock in the morning and tell them to behave and go home, and they will do it. Those just aren't the people that the politicians usually have on speed dial. And the, the folks that are on speed dial are usually less than inauthentic in the eyes of the street. So you find the people who are actually doing the work and work with them. You find the people who can actually provide immediate granular support to the chaotic lives that these guys lead. And you, you take somebody who's 21 years old, suffering, you know, soaked in PTSD, Somebody's trying to kill him. He has nobody, nowhere to sleep tonight. You know, outstanding warrants, and say to him, you know, come, come to my social service agency in a week. We'll do a needs assessment. We'll give you referrals to job training and GED. You are never going to hear from him again. And again, every community has people who actually work with with those at highest risk. You know, in in their immediate situation. Those are usually not the people with big agencies. They, they don't have HR. They don't know how to get the big federal grants. So you find them and support them in the work that they need to do. You figure out how to talk directly to the guys on the street. And there are a couple of very well-developed ways of doing this, um, at least before the pandemic and now again as the pandemic eases. If you have 20 groups and they're the most violent groups in the city, you look at them, overwhelmingly each of them is going to have somebody on, on probation or parole just because of the lives these guys lead and their, their, their intersection with the law. And that means probation and parole can say, come to a meeting on Friday, we want to talk to you for an hour. And in that meeting, the partnership can say to them, we want you safe, alive, and free. Here's how you get help. Here are people in the community that you respect who are going to tell you what the community does and doesn't want. And law enforcement is going to tell you ahead of time that violence is going to get special attention and the kind of attention it's going to get. And you put that together, you begin the work, you keep the partnership together, you stay focused, 
and repeatedly this produces really substantial rapid results. And everything you said a moment ago is right. But if we ground that on this core understanding that the outside world has done harm and has failed to protect, and that the, the first way to look at those at highest risk as, as people who have been victimized and continue to be victimized, and that we need to attend to their safety, to their trauma, and we begin there, then again, everything you've just said is right. But the way we think about it and the way we, we should pursue it turns our normal way of thinking upside down. Okay, so what you are further suggesting, David, here, is there has to be almost a cultural change by those who are responsible for administering safety both in terms of recognizing that historical efforts have not worked. They may have worked for a while, but have not worked. And clearly part of the debate, and I want to get into this, uh, sometimes people view this as binary, that either you're going to have a strong so-called police force and law enforcement effort, or you're not. And what you are suggesting here is that the choice is not binary. The, the only path to real public safety lies through the kind of government that communities want and see as legitimate. You know, and that's no different for what, what outsiders think of dangerous communities than it is for the white suburbs where that's taken for granted. The perennial universally accepted, universally recognized, we just take this as normal, appalling elevated levels of, of violence and victimization in historically harmed communities of color is a failure of our democracy. And, and the fact that we all know that that's true we know that what we do doesn't work and we just take that for granted. You know, why should people who have been subjected to that respect the law and the agents of the law? You know, the, the fact that the, the police continue to be called in those communities at very high rates, which they do. Um, you talk to people there in the formal research they believe in the law, they want good relationships with the police, they're willing to work with the police. I, I honestly don't understand why that is still true, given, given the way the mainstream has treated them historically. But it is true, people still want a, a good relationship with, with their government. And again, this is simple. This can get as fancy as we want it to be, and we can talk about the social contract and the monopoly in, in, in a democracy of the state for, for the use of coercive violence. And, right, we, it's, that's all pretty sophisticated stuff. This is not sophisticated. If somebody is in trouble and they will, will not want, to, or their, the, the, the norms in their community say, you don't call the police, that means people will take care of themselves, and that means there will be violence and vendetta and retaliation and beef. It is just that simple. 
and you cannot brutalize a community into liking an institution. The institution has to present a face to the public that the public wants. And the folks who don't get this, who, who say oppressive policing is the only way to produce public safety, have it exactly wrong. If we can't produce a kind of democracy that the affected community wants, then the only thing left is either abandoning them or brutalizing them. And neither one of those things is okay. And um, certainly a couple years ago, a number of years ago. And David, um, what I'd like, I, I always have appreciated some of the narratives, some of the storytelling, where you were able to successfully intervene and reduce gang criminal activity and bring, quite frankly, gang members back together with their family by working closely with the police, documenting the criminal activity, and then essentially convening the group and sharing with the various gang members the evidence that had been amassed against them, and beginning that process of messaging and de-escalation and intervention with appropriate support, messengers, and assistance. So we've, we've shared a lot of stories over the last 10 years or so. Um, let me tell one from, from just recently. Um, you know, what, what I've been talking about a lot is coming to understand what's going on here in terms of the failure of our systems, the failure of the way we think about things, uh, blaming people for circumstances that they have been put in, in, and over and over and over again, looking only at bad behavior and not recognizing the harm that has been, been delivered that, that is so much part of, of creating what happens. So this, this is not a long time ago, right? This is this week. So in, in one of the cities that the National Network works with, uh, last week, police officers with community members and, and service providers made a home visit on somebody who had been shot and who had survived that victimization. And this, this is something we, we teach cities to do. We call it the citizen police response to victims of violence. It is not about solving the case. It's not about the investigation. It's about the fact that somebody has been hurt. Uh, you know, to the way you've been talking about this, David, this, this is a human being. This, this is part of our community. This is part of the community fabric. We don't care who they are or what they might have done. They have been shot. That's not okay. Nobody deserves to be shot. Their family's going to be traumatized. And one of the things we do is teach police who have only thought about these incidents in terms of a crime, an incident, an offender, a case, clearance, to set that aside, at least in part of their institutional life, and pay attention to this person in their situation. So, in one of the very earliest of these visits in this city, 
that small team went to this house, talked to the young man who'd been shot, talked to his family. And in the course of that visit, which could have been happening, people have been, could have been doing this forever, they just haven't been, that young man and his family made it clear that the person who had done this to him was still out there, uh, the victim was alive, um, the person who was doing this wanted to change that, that it was almost inevitable that this was going to continue. And the authorities have the capacity to deal with this kind of situation and had, had him out of that house and in protective custody within a couple of hours, relocated his family, got them out of the line of fire. And there's nothing in that intervention that couldn't have been happening you know, for years and decades before now. You know, the, the resources are available, the tools are available. You, you talk to people in law enforcement and they will tell you, you know, if somebody's been shot and they survive, the likelihood that they're gonna get killed in the next couple of weeks is astronomically high, we know that. But those weren't people who were thinking in terms of, okay, this is, let's say, a gang member, uh, he's got an extensive criminal record. In most departments, most of the time, that would have been the end of their thinking, right? We've got these binary categories, good people, bad people, you know, citizens, scumbags. And it didn't take much to teach this department a different way of thinking about this. And within literally, you know, weeks of beginning to talk with them about this, they were saving people's lives. I remember, I think there was, there was a gang in Long Island, David. So that, that was Hempstead, Long Island. Um, this was under the, the leadership of, of then District Attorney Kathleen Rice, now, now a, a congresswoman in the United States government. And she, she was a very, very progressive, very um, aggressive, recently elected district attorney. And the Terrace and Bedell intersection in Hempstead was probably intergenerationally for decades the worst open-air drug market on Long Island. You know, it's notorious regionally. And Kathleen, quite properly, was not about to put up with this. She organized an absolutely classic Swiss watch of a local, state, and federal uh, drug investigation. They had local involvement, DA involvement, seconded prosecutors from the Justice Department. They followed the, the drugs all the way back to cartel sources. They took down chunks of, of the source cartels. A uh, year and a half of work, probably millions of dollars. And a couple of weeks after the takedown, there were more drugs and more activity at Terrace and Bedell than there were before. And unlike a lot of people in her position, you know, Kathleen looked at that and said, this is just not working. Is there something else we can do? And we worked with her on, on a version of one of these interventions that's specifically crafted for drug markets. And you're exactly right. There was, there was a, a, a lot of undercover work for, for months looking at the people who were driving the drug market on the selling side 
you know, I, I keep saying the community's not dangerous. People had written off this entire neighborhood. There were about a dozen and a half frontline street level dealers that were causing all of this damage. You know, hardly anybody in the scheme of things did a lot of work to to document what they were doing. You know, cops are, and feds are good at this. Uh, audio, video, undercover surveillance, organized. The social services found people's families. And on the day, and David, you're remembering this exactly right, invited everybody to a meeting. And the community was very heavily involved in this. The police were going to have the meeting at the police station. And the community partners looked at them and said, are you out of your mind? And they had the meeting at, at the Black History Museum. And so brought everybody in, uh, sat everybody down, said, nobody's getting arrested here. Everybody's going home. Everybody can relax. But the drug market is out of business. We are, we are not putting up with this anymore. And ladies and gentlemen, roll tape. And they had taken key moments out of this months of carefully documented surveillance and put together a sort of greatest hits reel of the people in the room selling drugs to undercover police officers and federal investigators. And in, in some of these sessions, uh, uh, this, this came out of the front lines, but, but early on in this, uh, one of the prosecutors involved looked at the room and said, gentlemen, when you see yourself committing a felony, raise your hand. And so everybody got to look at those who had been invited selling drugs and the lights went back up and the law enforcement folks said, we are not going to arrest you. We don't want to do this. We don't want to ruin your lives. We've been arresting you and people like you years in and years out here. There were hundreds of drug arrests just at this, this little block every single year. It's never worked. We want to help you. Here's how you get help. The elders in the community are going to tell you that they want you to be, be well, but they cannot put up with this anymore. You are tearing the place apart. And if it stops, then all we want to do is help you. But we're telling you ahead of time, we could arrest you today. And if we know you're back at it in this area, we have the legal evidence that we need. And please don't make us do it. And that drug market evaporated that day. And some very simple measures to keep it from coming back has meant that it has never come back. And in the, in the aftermath of that, two of the most important partners were the sort of unofficial mayor of that area and the man who led the local chapter of 100 Black Men, which is a, a very prominent grassroots activist organization. And I sat with them in, in the aftermath of that operation and heard them say to the police chief, Joe Wing, and to Kathleen Rice, the DA, we didn't really think of the chief and the DA as human beings. We just thought you were sitting there waiting for our kids to grow up so you could lock them up. And that's really what they thought. And the behavior of the officials completely justified that. The drug market had been there for decades. The cops had been arresting everybody in sight. The DA had been putting them in jail. 
It hadn't done a bit of good. It hadn't done a bit of good. You know, why wouldn't the community think this was deliberate? And this just, you know, broke the mold. And so if we can't find alternative means, it really is for the greater good. It is incumbent upon us to think differently and also to recognize what, what's at stake. So, David, I want to thank you for your continuing work, and I look forward to collaborating with you going forward into the future. Thanks, David. You know, you're reminding me of something that we hear a lot from the street guys. You know, we spend a whole bunch of time talking about rivalries and beefs and vendettas and all that sort of thing. And um, you're reminding me that the street guys will very often say to us, you guys are worse than we are. The pastor banging, the social service banging, the politician banging. We're sensible compared to you guys. And, you know, way too often, they're way too right. David Kennedy is a criminologist, professor, action researcher, and author. He specializes in crime prevention in the inner city. You can read more about his work by visiting this podcast at rainnetwork.com. Individuals and organizations turn to RAIN for risk intelligence that cuts through the hype to focus on what they need to know, what to expect, and what to do. Subscribe to RAIN's core membership and get our daily risk book digest, weekly intelligence briefs on cyber, geopolitical, and financial crime, access to knowledge-sharing webinars, and breaking alerts on important risk developments. Find out how RAIN can power your business to success at rainnetwork.com. That's R-A-N-E-Network.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening.